Let us pray. Once more, Almighty God, draw near to us. Renew us. Refresh us. Pour your Spirit upon us and bring us your peace that is ours in Christ, that is freely given through Christ for what he has done, because it pleases you to bless us with him. Let us rejoice always at his coming once already and rejoice at the knowledge that he will come again. All of this we ask through that very same Christ our Lord. Amen. I will be your God, and you will be my people. In so many ways, this, I believe, is one of the most central foundational promises of all of Scripture, of what God is going to do to us, what He is going to do for this world. One of the first places that this promise shows up was way back in Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 and 8. There is in the midst of God making his covenant with Abraham, of establishing it with circumcision. And Yahweh says to Abraham, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Their God promises to Abraham that he is going to be his God, that he is going to be the God of his offspring. He is going to be the God of these people that are coming from Abraham that will take up this land of sojourning, this land that is known as Canaan that becomes Israel in the near future. And not only is God going to be their God, he is going to make them his people. He is going to change them and draw them near to himself. He is going to bring about a salvation that they could never expect. Because his promise is so glorious, God is going to fulfill it and act and accomplish it on his own. And throughout scripture, God has promised from the very beginning that he would save a people for himself, that he would bring about the salvation of many, that he would draw to himself his people that they might know him. All of these promises are founded upon that first great promise right after the fall of man. It's often called the proto-euangelion, the proto-gospel, the proto-good news of when God is cursing the serpent and he looks at the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her, your offspring and hers. And he says that her seed, her offspring would bruise the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise his heel. Again, another glorious promise from God, a promise of what he is going to accomplish, of how he is going to provide salvation. That this serpent who deceived Eve and led Adam into sin and brought sin into this world, who brought death into this world, who brought suffering into this world by his deception, by his temptation, the offspring of Eve would one day bruise his head. He would crush his head. He would stomp on him and rid this world of his influence. But that serpent would in that moment also strike this promised one's heel. He would bruise it. He would hurt him. He would injure him. And this promise 
slowly comes to fruition throughout all of the Old Testament. It comes to greater and greater fruition as it moves forward, as we move through the Old Testament, that the seed of the woman was coming. He would be of the offspring of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob. That this seed would come through the line of Judah and down on through the line of David himself. King David would be the one through whom this seed would ultimately come. Some way, somehow, David would have a son as promised to him in 1 Samuel 7 that would reign forever, that would rule, that would sit upon David's throne. And here on this night, we celebrate that. On this night and through tomorrow and throughout the next 12 days of Christmas, we'll celebrate that God the Father has brought about the assurance. He has manifested the assurance that He will fulfill His grand promises. He will make for Himself a people that are His. And He will be that people's God. He will make us His people and He will be our God. He does this through this child that is born, who is his very son, God the Son, incarnated in the flesh. And all of these things, this incarnation of the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Blessed Trinity coming down, being conceived in the womb of Mary, and then born into this world. All of it happened at the right time, in the right place, and for the right purpose, that God was going to accomplish this salvation. For so many years, the people had been waiting. They had been looking forward. They had been wanting, desiring for this God to come down, to save His people, to redeem the people. And oftentimes they misunderstood the promise. They misunderstood the work of God. They misunderstood what He was trying to do. And even more often, the people would stray. The people turned away and they went into idolatry. So much so that this very God who had made this promise to King David, made David's line virtually disappear for generations. There was no king on David's throne. For over 500 years, there was no king that was of David's line that sat upon his throne. And yet, at the right time and in the right place and for the right purpose, God accomplishes the coming of this king. So first, at the right time, throughout all the Old Testament, this promise had been made that the king was coming. A new king, one who is like David, one who is so often just simply called King David in the prophecies that David would arise once more. That's how tied the Messiah is to the great reign of King David. They are tied together intimately because David is the precursor. David is the one who brings and conquers and drives out the wicked people from the land. He leads God's people nearer and nearer to God, for he is the man after God's own heart. Despite his sin, despite his brokenness, despite his fallenness, he is still a man after God's own heart. He continually looks to God. He is a type of Messiah who leads God's people nearer to God. But yet he is not the one true Messiah that had been prophesied from the beginning. He is but one of many, of various kings who would be prototypical messiahs who would lead the people, Josiah and Hezekiah being another's. They would lead the people back to God and remind them of God's great power, of His great promises, of His great mercies and His compassion and His steadfast love that He would fulfill His promises to them. 
and it would happen at the right time. And so it slowly through the years trickled down, the people looking for this promise to come, and here it comes, here, in the Roman Empire, in a backwater province of the Roman Empire called Judah, under the governor of Syria. Here in this backwater province, there is a census that Caesar Augustus had said to be done, had called forth to be done. And God uses this. He arranges things so well that at the right time, Joseph and Mary would have to travel to Bethlehem, that they would have to travel southward and go down to the city of which their family has its roots, that they would go to the city of David to Bethlehem at the right time in order for the fulfillment of the promises to be made, in order for those to be fulfilled completely and totally for us. And so they traveled down at the right time. God arranged it all at the height of Augustus's power. He had brought a stabilizing peace. He had been reigning for nearly, for over a quarter century in the Roman Empire. He brought stability. He brought peace. He brought prosperity to the entire empire. His climb to power was a ruthless climb, full of deceptions and murders. But yet, once he was made emperor, as one commentator said, he mellowed out and applied his wisdom and brought about great wealth. He brought about stability that had never been known in this region throughout all of this area of Europe, of the Middle East, of North Africa. There was peace that had not been known the Pax Romano had begun at the right time. There was peace in order that there could be safe travels for Mary and Joseph, in order that there could be safety for them to move about as they were needed, as they needed. And also at the right time that as this son Jesus was born, as he would grow up, as he would go forth to be crucified and to be raised from the dead, it was still the right time because with the Pax Romana, it was easy for the disciples, for the apostles to spread and travel throughout the Roman Empire to spread the gospel, to spread the message of salvation that in this man that was born in this backwater town of Bethlehem, he is the Messiah, he is the judge of the world, and he will judge in righteousness. He will judge truthfully and rightly, and he will bring about salvation for he has accomplished it through his death and his resurrection, something that no other man had ever done because he is not an ordinary man, but he is God in the flesh who has come at the right time to bring salvation into this world in order to accomplish that promise that Yahweh said that He would be our God and that we would be His people. And right there alongside that right time, there is the right place, the right place of birth there in Bethlehem as, as it was promised there in Micah that we heard on Sunday, that little old Bethlehem would become the place from whence the King would come from whence the Messiah would come, this tiny little place called Bethlehem would become great in the eyes of the world, that would become great in the eyes of history, for all would look back and say, that is where the Messiah was born, that is where the Messiah came from. And it is the right place, because that is the city of David. It is the city in which David himself was born. And so how much better, how much more appropriate could it be that the Messiah would have to be born there, that he would live there, that he would be birthed there, and spend a little time there, growing and maturing, little by little, in that right place. And again, it was all arranged by God to occur there. 
in order to fulfill his promises to King David of establishing a son upon his throne. It made sense for the son to be born there in Bethlehem, in this little place outside of the capital of Israel, of Jerusalem, the right place for Jesus to be born. And some would point out just simply the meaning of the name Bethlehem is the house of bread. The house of bread is where the one who would give his flesh to the world, who would give us flesh as bread to eat, would be born. That out of the house of bread comes the Christ, the Messiah, who will feed us with his very life, who will give us his life, who will feed us with his very body in order that we would be changed and made new. And so there in the right place is the Messiah born. All arranged as Joseph and Mary went down from Galilee to Bethlehem to be registered. And Mary with him because she was his betrothed, and yet she was with child, as it says. And then she gave birth, and she wrapped her firstborn son in swaddling cloths and laid him in that manger because there was no place for them in the inn. There was no place for them, though they were in the right place at the right time for the birth of the Son who would redeem the world. The birth of the Son who would take upon himself the sins of the world, who would take upon himself to accomplish salvation, because that is what the Father had willed for him. That is what he and the Father had planned in order for him to come and be born and incarnate, to take on flesh, something no other God could ever do be born as a man because God himself can never die. God himself can never suffer. And so in order for God to accomplish salvation, he takes on flesh. The second person of the Trinity takes on human flesh, takes on a body and is born out of the womb of Mary. He doesn't just appear on the scene out of nowhere. He is born. He is conceived. And he comes from Mary who becomes the new Eve in some ways. For it is her seed now that will crush the serpent's head. It is her seed who will bruise the serpent's head, though the serpent will bruise his hill. That though Eve was deceived, Mary received all that God had given her faithfully. She walks that path in order to bring about the salvation of the world, in order to carry the salvation of the world to Bethlehem. And out of her womb comes the Christ child, comes the Messiah, comes the one to redeem all. And it was all for the right purpose that Jesus came into the world, for it is the pleasure of God to bring about salvation. He sent Jesus at the right time and in the right place for the right purpose, to accomplish the pleasure of God for the salvation of the world through the work of Christ. The salvation of the world was coming, and that is God's purpose in Jesus coming into this world to redeem us, to take from us the sin that is so part of us, that is so much a part of us, that is so draining, that is so destructive to us. The purpose of God is to save us, to redeem us, to pour his pleasure upon us. As we hear in from the angels in verse 14 of Luke 2, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased, that God is bringing peace to those with whom he is pleased, that he is pleased to bring about salvation, to bring peace to the world. That he desires to accomplish this salvation, this forgiving work of Christ, 
to accomplish redemption and renewal and transformation of this world into something new, into something greater than it ever had been. Something infinitely more beautiful than even it was before it became fallen. The purposes of God is to bring salvation to us. And in bringing that salvation, he accomplishes that purpose of being our God and making us his people. For that is salvation in and of itself. That is the salvation that is given in a nutshell, that God makes himself our God and he makes us his people. That is what God wants to do. That is the purpose of God right now for us to make us his people in order that he can be our God. He might made us for himself. As Augustine said, St. Augustine, our hearts are made for you, and until they find their rest, they are restless. To paraphrase him, since that's not a direct quote, apparently. But we were made for God. And because he made us for himself, he takes us to himself. He claims us as his own. He renews us and redeems us and takes away the sin that is in us through Christ, through Jesus, through his son coming into this world. He manifests salvation there in the manger. He manifests salvation to the world through his son, through God in the flesh for us. As St. Paul would say, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God, his kindness, his love, his forgiveness, his compassion, his mercies, his ever-enduring steadfast love has appeared in the face of Jesus for us. In the face of this child is God himself. For the Godhead was pleased to dwell in him bodily. For the fullness of God is in Jesus, and therefore he is God for us. He is God who goes to the cross, who is born to go to the cross. That is the purpose of him being born, is to go to that cross. Christmas isn't about sentimentality. It's about the real world implications of the birth of God into this world. And the implication is for him to be born in order to go to the cross for us. And from that cross to go into the grave. And from that grave and death to go into the resurrection in order that we would know that we too will be raised from the dead one day. That as it has been given to Christ to be raised from the dead, we too, united to him through faith and baptism, will also be raised from the dead into the glorious new life that is now in Jesus, that has taken up its resident in, residence in us, that is hidden from the world's eyes, and yet it is in us. We are participating in that glorious, beautiful future resurrection even now, as our hearts and our minds and our bodies are slowly being renewed, little by little, even as our bodies break down, they are being renewed by the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us, the Holy Spirit given to us. The grace of God has appeared, and He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. He changes us and draws us to himself that we might cry out joy, that we might cry out joy to the world, that we might embrace all that he has done, that we would go forth in good works, that we would go forth in renewal and transformation and be changed more and more 
and to act as that changed people who are transformed into God's very people. Jesus comes to make us God's people. Jesus comes to redeem us. Jesus comes to lay hold of our hearts and our minds as his own, to take us to himself and to carry us into a new and glorious new creation. He carries us forward and calls us to himself this night. And so may we rejoice. May we cry out, Hosanna in the highest. May we cry out that he is king of all. That even as a child, as a little baby who is just born, he is still the king. For he is God himself in the flesh for us, ready to live in this world beside us, ready to live alongside us and to walk alongside us in order that he can take our sins upon himself to get rid of them, that we would be transformed. And so rejoice, my beloved. Rejoice in our Lord Jesus, for he is come and he is coming again. And even now he is meeting us here through his word, through his sacrament. He is meeting us and renewing us and calling us more and more to himself that we would rejoice and go forth in the joy of salvation and redemption, to go forth in the joy of knowing that God is our God and that we are his people. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen.